0: One thing that I think is absent from so many of these accounts is uh, a notion of human agency almost. I mean, there's always a notion of capital's agency, but I suppose there's always lacking a notion of agency from, from, from below. I mean, you read some of these brilliant histories, uh, histories that I really love, and I get a huge amount of it and, and really make you think. But you wouldn't have an idea that there was a British Black Power movement or a rock against racism. Uh, and I think we on the left need to recover some of those often Uh, forgotten moments of agency both explicit and subterranean when
1: we write our histories this program is brought to you by haymarket books as part of our live event series haymarket books is a radical independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in a struggle for a better world you can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, Rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Salvage Live, an event series brought to you by Haymarket Books and Salvage, a journal appearing twice a year with essays, fiction, art, and poetry for a desolated left, learning to address not the good old times, but the bad new ones. We're your co-hosts on Salvage Live. I'm Barnaby Rain, and in a moment, we'll hear from Annie Ololoku-Tariba. First, an update from us. We had scheduled an episode last week with a Russian dissident, a scholar, an analyst of contemporary capitalism and imperialism in Russia, and a great political organizer. We were forced to cancel since Ilya Matveyev could no longer speak freely from Russia. So we hope to reschedule that event or a similar one. In this episode, we take stock. We try to work out what's going on. A couple of years ago, we heard everywhere liberal panic about the breakdown of a stable order. The 1930s were back. Democratic capitalism was threatened and that dreaded, long celebrated specter, the West, was threatened too. Vladimir Putin, some said, was running Washington and rejoicing in Brexit, a moment of breakdown in the unity and stability of European civilization. Today, London and Washington join with Berlin and Brussels, and they sing from the same hymn sheet in the defense of civilization, democracy, the West, even the Enlightenment, all threatened by bears to the East. We are back, it seems, in an old story of inter-imperialist confrontation, and the Western Bloc is thoroughly united. So what happened? Our guest is brilliantly positioned to give us some answers. Jonas Marvin wrote a great essay in Salvage 10 about the long history of what he called prophetically the populist interregnum. We'll focus on Britain tonight after past episodes concentrated on the United States and the European Union. Jonas has distinctive things to say about how we got to this sad juncture, how we should understand it and hope to get out of it. This dispensation where the oppressed and exploited of the world are marshaled behind rival nationalist projects where the old status quo of technocratic neoliberalism faces secular crises and loses. Welcome back everyone. It wouldn't be Salvage Live or The Radical Left without some interruptions. Um, I'm just going to get going with our first question while we wait for Annie to join us and sort childcare at the same time. Um, So I want to begin where I left off your essay Jonas, uh, well, firstly, welcome Jonas to Salvage Live. Your essay narrates a century of British history in order to decipher how Brexit became possible. So can you tell us why does Brexit matter now? Isn't it, as Boris Johnson promised in 2019,
0: done? Yeah, thanks, Barnaby. Um, And first of all, let me thank Salvage for hosting this event, um, but also because I got the recent issue, which everyone should go get a copy of, and it was remarkably thinner than the issue my article was published in. So thanks to them for taking a punt on publishing such a long essay and thanks to all of the comrades that were part of the contributing conversations. Um, now, I, I, I should begin with the why before I do the isn't it done part of that question. Um, for me, thinking through the sort of class history of Brexit was provoked by three things. Um, the first was the obviously the 2016 referendum itself um, as a moment which scrambled uh, so much left thinking about class alliances uh, and class blocks and what the left typically imagined uh, of class. Um, And I think as a result of that, scrambled a lot of uh, socialist thinking um, because of the ramming through of significant bifurcations in both the elite bourgeois projects and the working class at large. Um, The second was that this played out to great effects in the Corbyn project, to, to which I considered myself a part. You know, it split its electoral coalition in half, and I think in the end created the conditions for Corbynism's demise. And 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 thirdly, on the why, um, after the defeat of Corbynism and the onset of the pandemic, we had the deeply inspiring revival and expansion of the BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, mobilising people in over two hundred and sixty towns and cities across Britain. And I think uh, raising once again age-old questions of how the left thinks about anti-racism, um, but how it does so. Uh, on an on a anti-capitalist basis as well. So that's that. Um, but as you ask, isn't the whole thing finished with? Uh, and that depends, really. Um, you know, one could argue that it's complete as an overtly political process. Boris Johnson's uh, 2019 electoral victory, the subsequent exit from the EU just two months later kind of signal that. And I think there's some truth to that. And you certainly won't count me among any of the increasingly few political forces who think there's some value to dredging the issue back up. Um, but there is, of course, still much about the technical relationship which is up for grabs—technical, quote unquote. There, uh, regarding the relationship between the European Union as an imperialist trading bloc on the one hand, and the very real legacies of Britain's colonial relationship to Ireland on the other, for example, uh, I won't pretend to offer any real insight into that. Um, I think the, the the critical thing for me uh, is that Brexit as a social and political process uh, justified and encapsulated the tendency towards Uh, working-class decomposition, a tendency that isn't finished and isn't final, you know, um, precisely because class is always being de- and recomposed technically, politically, socially, spatially, um, and yet the issue of how this inflects with nation-race are not going away either. You know, we we take two examples on this decomposition-recomposition thing. The first is the recent relative uptick in industrial action. Uh, We've seen on the part of workers in the context of a tight labour market, inflation, the rise of things like Sharon Green's unite Leadership. This has a real influence on union, wages, self-organisation and the like, uh, and contributes towards a process not of decomposition, but of recomposition. It's a small increase relative to the decline we've seen over the past 40 years, but it's a real one nonetheless. A second example, however, is the Nationality and Borders Bill. This bill, which gives the state an inordinate amount of leeway to further and harass, uh, further harass and block refugees from entering the country, also puts existing uh, citizenship of millions up for grabs, potentially removed from the country without notice, subject to the state's whims on the ambiguous grounds of unlawfulness. As well as uh, being a deeply racializing bill in and of itself, re-identifying racialized outsiders and reanimating the Racialized tropes about Islamists um, and, and so forth. It also deepens Tony Blair and Theresa May's hostile environment, further stratifying the working class, of which racialized outsiders make a huge minority. So, in both of these examples, you see processes of class D and recomposition, which found expression in what led Tibet to Brexit, but are far from done. And you can add to this things like the government's race commission, the authoritarian, racialized handling of the pandemic. Um, there's a continued process of identifying racialized outsiders and so much of the content which constituted Brexit remains, but just in a remarkably different moment to the one we were in in 2016.
3: Thank you, James. Um, so in your essay, you pose a pair of big questions for radical politics, so I want to treat them in turn. So first, you have the long history of remaining. How did a section of the multiracial working class end up lining up behind right neoliberal racists like Tony uh, like Tony Blair and David Cameron, who authored so much hostility to Britain's uh in Britain's border regime and came to present themselves and the European leaders as champions and defenders of cosmopolitanism. And I think one really clear example of that is the idea that draping oneself in the European Union flag today is a symbol of anti racism. And how did that happen? And what does this history about the politics of class, race, and, national, uh, and nation in Britain? Uh, sorry, what does this history reveal about the politics of class, race, and nation in Britain?
0: Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, yeah, well, I, I think it's worth beginning with what the turn to Europe was initially. Uh, it was Edward Heath, the Tory Prime Minister, that took Britain into Europe in, in 73. Um, you know, by the early 70s, global capitalism was in crisis, there was the OPEC oil shock which had a dramatic effect on the global economy. And the British state was trying to figure out a path forward with both sections of the Labour establishment, but predominantly the Tory establishment, having long decided that the European Economic Community, the EEC, was the best path forward uh, for its future. Ironically, in that referendum, you have Harold Wilson, Roy Jenkins, and the Tories all lined up on one side in favour of membership, with Enoch Powell, Tony Benn, the Communist Party, and various nationalist parties lined up on the stay-out side. so this referendum became a clear yes to EEC membership. And the case that was made by the business class against left and right nationalists was, was pretty clear. Abstract questions of sovereignty, they said, weighed less heavily than the need to keep the lights on and food on the table. Um, in a moment which had experienced the biggest stock market crash since 29, a three-day week induced by a miners of and fears of uh, national isolation, capital was able to play on fears of insecurity. Um, Of course, the capital itself entrance into the EEC was one of its first steps away from the post-war settlement and towards a more thoroughly pro-business environment. It was instinctively a case made to deal with fears of inflationary pressure of a resurgent left. Uh, And as the Europeanists would argue at the time, you know, sovereignty is that freedom is meaningless without power. I am not free to have dinner at the Ritz if I cannot pay the bill. And they meant this. I really recommend everybody read uh, Rob Knox's brilliant "Lost law lawsterity essay in Salvage, where he outlines the only democratic nature of Europe from the outset. Uh, under European law, domestic governments seek to hem themselves in through governing their economic ha- behaviour through the provision of rules up to and including the law. Now, this doesn't explain the reason the working class in big cities and metropolitan arenas voted to remain. There are two interrelated reasons for this, to my mind. Um, just the, so on the one hand, you have the expansion of a, a whole new layer of uh, racialized insiders in local government. Uh, throughout the 70s, the British Black Power Movement and other anti-racist organizations that define their projects as socialist or anti-imperialist, the convergence of the 80s riots Greater London Council anti-racism and models elsewhere similar to it around the country and the workers' movement recreated a social layer of ethnic minorities within the state reproducing the state's prerogatives. This is really typified by the introduction of uh, the state's introduction of inter-ethnic competition for funding, contributing toward toward the broader disorganisation of black militancy at the time. As Sivanandan describes it, you know, political blackness is decompartmentalised by a new statist race relations industry seeking to deepen and foster uh, ethnic rivalries through the parcelized distribution of funding and grants. Paul Gilroy uh, as well describes a similar process but in regards to the Greater London Council, a process where anti-racism turns into competition between minority groups and pressure on the local state uh, as the key site of anti-racist struggle. So you see as a product of defeat, anti-racism shifts from seeing the state as an enemy to seeing it as a vehicle for mitigating racism. Um, now on the other hand, after the defeat of the major battalions of the trade union movement in the 80s, their membership and influence and power and decline, uh, Jacques Delors, the, the then president of the European Commission, uh, you know, he goes to Brighton to a conference in 88 and promises a social Europe. You know? It signifies a moment whereby the trade unions, once majorly opposed to European integration, might support joining. Uh, it provides a solace to a defeated movement in fact, Thatcher's, Brist- Thatcher's Britain. Um, the possibility that European integration might revive industry and protect trade unions against the worst excesses of neoliberalism. In the, the then General Secretary of what, was, uh, what, what preceded the Unite Trade Union claimed Europe was the only game in town. So you can see the impact of successive working class defeats and the reorganization of the economy on a basis which undermines union power push these union leaderships towards a pro-Europe position, just as they were climbing themselves towards new, unfavourable industrial conditions. Uh, none of this, by the way, reflects the particularly progressive stance by the EU. Uh, the, social ja- the social chapter which uh, laws lauded was indexing socialist retreat, not advance, uh, and, and, and none of its clauses in protected instances of union or class power. So in both instances here, we have the defensive nature of the working class remain for by any measure, most Remain voters have a more progressive attitude than their leave counterparts towards multiculturalism, climate change, feminism, uh, lots of other things. But the sad reality that, for example, Jeremy Corbyn's uh, campaign to stay in the EU characterized standing up against racism and the erosion of workers' rights as synonymous with defending Britain's membership of the EU, that represented a, it, it represented a long, uh, deeply fermenting seismic shift. In both anti-racist and labour movement thinking, you know this anti-anti-democratic neo, neoliberal trading bloc, fortified at the expense of migrants and refugees, and responsible for pulverising the livelihoods of workers across southern and eastern Europe, had now become the apparent salvation of minorities and workers here. And this transformation not only signified a dull end of the horizons of socialists and anti-racists who once saw the common market and the state as an oppressor but it typified their institutionalisation, it typified defeat. Um, so this is, you know, this is a cleavage which had opened up out of the defeats of the 70s and 80s and found its final tragic but classical expression in the notion that the EU was the last hope uh, of progressives. Um, yeah.
3: Thanks so much Jonas, and I think that gives us a really kind of detailed picture of how we got to where we are in terms of the kind of fra- fracturing left. Sorry guys, we do have a cameo appearance for my daughter. who's um, <laughs> learning to clap. Um, all right. So I want to turn now to the lever. And this is kind of two questions, really. So mm-hmm. firstly, I want to understand how it is that a section of the working class end up behind precisely the type of people who are happy and excited about destroying their communities. Uh, people like Johnson, like Farage, like Jacob Rees Mogg, and champ um who not only champion the devastations um, of these communities, sorry, but were also chief architects of this destruction. Um, same question again, but put differently, what of like what kind of entanglement of race, class, and nation is at stake here, and how does it play out in the present?
0: Yeah, thanks, Annie. Um I, f- I think the best place to start here is the nation itself. Um, you know, the the working class movement of this country has always had a contested relationship with nationalism. Um, you know, Satnam Verdi has written eloquently on a current of socialist nationalism which has always sought to redefine the scope of a national community, which includes some workers but excludes other. You know, one historic example of this is Jewish workers at the turn of the tw- 20th century, resiliently militant against global and British capital, yet subject to attack uh, and exclusion within uh, native worker institutions. Um, this socialist nationalism, I think, finds its best expression within the primary political institution of the workers' movement, which is the Labour Party. Birthed out of the defeats of new unionism, the Labour Party, like much of the trade unions, found their influence growing as the the process of the Third World, first World War emerged, uh, where they were both seen as disciplinarian intermediaries between capital and the state on the one hand, uh, and the labour force on the other. And by nature of that social position, they negotiate compromises between workers and capital within the confines of the nation state. Uh, so this mediatory role facilitates a class compromise. Inclines them, to, inclines them towards maintaining political order and economic stability, becoming capital's interlocutors as much, if not more, than they were Labour's representatives. And often in this process, what you see happen, which does not by any stretch explain anything, uh, or everything, sorry, uh, is that the, this, this negotiated compromise within uh, a national container uh, often occurs at the expense of racialized minorities be they militant Jewish workers at the turn of the century um, or the Grand Witch Strikers, for example, in the 70s. Um, so we have this dynamic in play. Uh, and then we have Labour's crowning moment in forty-five. The Second World War ended. We're in this new, you know, what Harvey calls this Fordist-Keynesian paradigm. Um, and there are two sides to this moment relevant for us, I think. The first is that it's a deeply national moment. David Edgerton talks at this moment as a crown in one of the British nation, you know. Nationalization isn't just a model of economic management here. It's a byword for the mode of politics, far more than any hint towards socialism, nationalist protectionism, a nationalist critique of free enterprise and national self-sufficiency by British campaigns and import controls arranged against even Commonwealth nations. National developmentalism and productivism organized around the second side of this process which is the deep spatial equilibrium national capital sought to foster in this moment through a process of uh, what Neil Brenner calls spatial Keynesianism, sort of mitigating uneven development through the construction of sort of planned urban and industrial networks. Now, this, this post-war moment, uh, which uh, one scholar calls the supreme moment of proletarian whiteness, there's a, there's a, there's a massive spatial transition happening here. Um, this turn to the nation is deeply enmeshed in the decline of Britain's empire. You know, Owen Haffley in his uh, Ministry of Nostalgia talks about the marrying of socialism with English identity through the process of wartime mo- mobilisation. I think that's right. But I also think there's the reality that whiteness, this, this, this colour-coded racial uh, categorization, which is so constitutive of empire, also has its domestic modalities, sucking English workers into the scope of a national community whose interests were defined as contingent upon imperial hi- hierarchies, so then against things like anti-colonial insurgency. So that's a picture of the post-war movement, which I think is far more credibly the the sort of ideological valence of Brexit uh, than for example something like post-colonial nostalgia. And that's that's not to doubt that post-colonial nostalgia is an important isn't an important aspect of the Brexit campaign. I think it was when you think of Uh, Rule Britannia uh, (laughs) 2.0, that expresses some sentiments of some sections of British capital, and it has resonance uh, amongst some of the the Tories traditional petty bourgeois voter base, particularly in the English South. But I'm unconvinced it tells us much about the working class bit of that leave vote. The reason for this is that I think the the disintegration of the post-war settlement and the arrival of what we now call neoliberalism. Had particular spatial and racial effects on creating the working class leave foot. On the spatial effects, as Thatcher increased her grip over the nation, uneven development becomes a necessary precondition for profitable capital accumulation. This, this emerging settlement rose through the confluence of a few factors the decline and restructuring of mass production, the rise of flexible production systems. The globalization and integration into European economic space, and of course, the crisis of the Keynesian welfare state. This there's a new growth-oriented and, and competitiveness-driven uh, approach to urban governments, uh, urban urban governance, which resulted in sharpened uneven development as strategic locations and big cities become the predominant sites for transnational capital investment. So there's this. This results in you know accelerated growth in the English South, going hand in hand with industrial climb in the Midlands, South Wales and the North of England. And this doesn't just begin with factorism, of course, it's a broader economic reorganisation that you know has uh, initial uh, styles of reorganisation which begin under Callaghan with incentives shifting away from the Commonwealth, uh, and, but towards outsourcing, union smashing, increasing unemployment and particularly the EEC as the vehicle for economic revival. And this story was replicated across industrial regions most subject to factors by, um, as huge contractions in unemployment and income preceded her clashes with class battalions like the miners. In terms of the, the process of racialization, um, I think we can identify a long arc, um, which goes, goes back much further than this, and it's difficult to, to compact these histories. Um, but I'll begin with the you know, Powell's, Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood um, speech in which he outlined uh, in several speeches around that period, actually, the terms upon which the post-war moment would unravel, you know, the, the, the gravitational pull of powerism uh, as a current which diagnosed racialized outsiders and enemies of the state, insisted on knowing the numbers of migrants in the country and waged lyrical assault on state management techniques, really had a dramatically strong pull. Uh, on laborism, but whilst powerism had real material effects emboldened the Tory anti-migrant bloc, sparking strikes and support, gaining a huge amount of broader public support, power was in many ways just a signifier and an interlocutor of a direction of travel which wouldn't just be taken up by Thatcher, Keith Joseph and the New Right, but by Tony Blair too. Um, so you think, I mean obviously there's, you know, there's lots of things to talk about in terms of Thatcher, the talk of swamps of migrants her own policies towards migrants uh, and her own uh, deep insistence on, on knowing the numbers and, and knowing how many of these, these racialized subjects were coming to Britain and ruin the fabric of, of British national life. Um, but so would Blair. You know, Blair and Brown conducted three critical processes of racialization with the, the war on terror and the domestic criminalization of the Muslim, Muslim population A reinvented and expanded asylum system which sorts of criminalising and harass asylum seekers. He characterised the riots in northern towns at the turn of the century, not as a response to racism and a response to fascism, uh, but as the product of Asian youth unchecked by British values. And he triangulated anyone to the right whenever they made racist approximations against migrants or minority communities. This was when Michael Howard said it's not racist to know the numbers, when well, then Blair says, well, here are the numbers. There hasn't been a massive increase. Um, so this government, which weighs a legal war, sets up detention centres like Yars would, uh, is absolutely central to creating the conditions of Brexit. You know, these, these multiple vectors of racialisation that I'm talking about, organised and articulated by New Labour, really aggravated the disentangling of anti-racism and working-class politics achieved under Thatcher. British values then become a proxy for reconstituting racialised outsiders and foreign interests against the, supposedly conservative culture and values of the white English proletariat. Yeah, this is all typified in the financial crash. Brown tries to revive Labour's fortunes with uh, British jobs for British workers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Interesting contrast when you consider that these people deepen neoliber- neoliberalism, introduce PFIs, encourage tighter funding and outsourcing on councils, ramped up fact authoritarianism, not just against racialized mo- minorities, but against uh, white workers through workfare, moral panics and, uh, and the spectre of the chav. One of the last parts of this story, you know, with the, with the election of Cameron and the, the Conservative Coalition in 2010, which marked a sharp turn towards austerity, um, austerity measures were carefully targeted at public service users and welfare recipients. And there were draconian cuts to the lo- local government, um, which went overwhelmingly towards Labour-controlled councils. You know, you look at somewhere like the northeast between 2010 and, and 2015 or 2016. Uh, they had almost a billion pounds sucked out. Mm-hmm. The, the ramifications of that are huge. So there's class conditions and outcomes. You know, two thirds of council and housing association te- housing association housing association tenants voted to leave um, towns and cities across the country where stable familial life built around industry had been shattered. Uh, all of those places. Whether it's Hartley Pool, the, the mill towns of Burnley, all of these places were majoritarian in their vote to leave. Um, so there's that process. There's the, the post-war moment, uh, which you know it kind of is the it is the is often is often forgotten in these conversations, you know, because the image I offered earlier of the settlement torn apart by Thatcherism, you know, national self-sufficiency by British um, economic nationalism. This all lingers underneath Brexit, you know. The remark in the, is something I say in the essay, you know, if you could look at all the John Harris, not a reliable commentator, I admit, but look at all of his uh voxpots through De industrialized Britain throughout the Brexit process, and you get constant refrains of we used to make things. And I think that speaks to this. You know, this melancholic harking back is not for a post-imperial past necessary necessarily, but a national social democratic one, where there was still some promise of an e- economic and social security, and where there was a, a type of national class politics. And of course, thirdly, there's the influence of anti-migrant racism. You know, the, there's no point beating around the bush here. 33% of Leave voters said that exiting the EU offered the best chance for the UK to regain control of immigration and its own, and its own borders. 62% of Leave voters thought immigration was a force for ill. Uh, this spectre of the migrant as an economic, cultural, social threat has always been a feature of working class politics, competing with things like proletarian internationalisms. And as long as the nation is the racialized territorial form through which economic life is organized, political struggles unravel, and global conflicts are flawed, will always be uh, a relate- racialized outsider. But of course, these things are aggravated um, by uh, politicians and political actors who routinely uh, talk of, um, you know, the, the, the language of a limited and, and sometimes scarce national pool infringing on the rights and living standards of the culturally conservative working class. Labour and Tories do, do this all the time, and it's a deflection. Um, you know, Verdi's notion of socialist nationalism here is taken to its extreme, as Brexit, you know, it really is what happens when even the socialist component of that tendency is remoulded around far more thoroughly compromised, racialized and neoliberal conduits.
1: If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis, An Autobiography. Featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis, An Autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the Black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis, an autobiography, is a powerful and commanding account of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey From a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century, from her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the Faculty of the Philosophy Department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 Most Wanted Fugitives, find Angela Davis, an autobiography at haymarketbooks.org.
2: Wow, Jonas. So in uh, about 20 minutes, you've just yeah have a drink. You've just taken us through almost a century of uh, history of the class race nation triangle, which is to to narrate for us the making of a very sad binary in which on one side, class the, the possibility of a form of class politics uh, was so entangled with uh, reactionary constructions of race and nation. And on the other side, uh, uh, attempts against that on the Remain side to uh, uh, speak a progressive language of race and nation, in fact, were entangled not only with uh, reactionary forms of class politics, uh, but also actually uh, loyal, as, as you show then, to uh, forms of state, the British state and the EU state, which are, in fact, I mean, the EU state is, of course, the leading uprightist leading apparatus for racist violence uh, on the continent um, and, and became the embodiment of, uh, of, of supposedly progressive opinion. So that's a very sad binary, which helps, you know, we're beginning, as I promised at the outset, we're beginning to, to narrate We'll get by the end of the event up to the present. Uh, so we're beginning to work out how we got here. But there seems to be one except one obvious recent exception in that sad story, which you haven't yet mentioned. And I know you and others are currently writing a book on Corbinism. So tell us how Corbinism fits in with that story.
0: Yeah, I'm afraid that, you know, it wouldn't really enlighten the tragedy that is apparent in this story. <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> uh, the, the the first thing, you know, that should be said, uh, and I say this with no spite and bitterness at all, is that you know Brexit was the 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 apparent pretext for several attempts to crush Corbynism by people, namely Labour MPs, who, if asked now, couldn't care less about the European (laughs) Union. Um, So there's that. Uh, But of course, the the European Union referendum and Brexit were both serious strategic dilemmas for Corbyn and the Corbyn Act project, primarily because it shot right through Labour's electoral coalition. Mm. Now, obviously, there's things like the chicken coup uh, by Labour MPs after the referendum, Um, you know, imagining that it was Jeremy Cor- Corbyn's fault that they lost Remain, rather than David Cameron running around the country um, telling people whose lives have been devastated by neoliberalism while leaving the EU would devastate their lives. Um, <laughs> so there's that. Um, you know, Corbyn's able to win another leadership election, and he's able to stick around for Theresa 's election in 2017. Now, this is really an important moment, uh, because this this for me becomes the zenith of the Corbyn project, where Corbyn is, Corbynism's activist base, you know, was the product of decades of accumulated settlements in, in consciousness experience ideas. Um, June the 9th, twenty seventeen, presented the moment that that political coalition transformed itself into a mass electoral bloc, predicated both on the stymian,, uh, partially of Labour's long electoral decline uh in, in in post-industrial constituencies and the animation of the young and the insecure in in, in big cities, students the unemployed casualized workers renters now on this uh I, you know i have i have comrades and friends that tell me i'm a bit deluded um but but to me this moment felt uh, as a comrade described it at a time like the very fragile emergence of some type of uh i suppose political uh working class subject you know you had the mass rallies you had the the public choruses of, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, the Grand for Corbyn phenomenon. Uh, you know, he had a popular response to Manchester, the bombings, you know, which raised the possibility that the bombing was the product of decades of Western intervention. Um, you even had thousands of people out of Manchester the next day singing Don't Look Back in Anger as they kicked the English Defence League, a fascist organisation, out of the city. Uh, and then some weeks later, Corbyn's Labour manages to achieve a hung parliament uh, and after the awful event at uh, Grenfell Corbin and John McDonald called for requisition of houses and described the affair as social murder while tens of thousands protested so there's this uh, and, you know maybe i am prone to exaggeration about this moment but i think it was a really important and educational moment uh, you know where you felt like there was the tremors of something uh, something different but by 2019 the process of the leadership it, it, of getting tangled up in these negotiations over Brexit, parliamentary manoeuvres, and internal rank, internal arrangements. So Brexit kind of transformed Corbyn from radical outsider, uh, a man of the streets, if you like, into conventional politician, and all and all that I talk about just there seemed to vanish. And this absorption was compounded by the leadership's eventual U-turn and support uh, for a second referendum. Uh, you know, spurning working class Leave voters. And one of the few practicable democratic decisions uh, older workers in particular have made in decades, you know, in this instance, Corbyn appeared just like the rest of them. Um, so no wonder then that one of the most vociferously pro-worker programs in history is rejected. Uh, a a Labour Party turns, uh, that turned their noses up at the referendum vote in 2016. It's not just that it couldn't be deemed trustworthy, but it just looked at the same old promise-breaking Labour Party. And after years of Australia, years of neoliberalism with few victorious struggles to speak of, it should have shown absolutely no one that a slave of older workers would choose the sort of vengefully tangible option to leave the EU over a manifesto of policies that recent history had unfortunately given them little reason to believe that ever materialized. Now, was this inevitable? Uh, it's possible that the process of this earlier in the essay, might have set in motion uh, a half century of class decomposition, insurmountable by any form of left electoralism. But I still think to this day it's the case that the, the period after 2017 represented a moment of leverage, potential opportunity, and, and definitely contingency um, that could have been embraced by the pro- project um, if it had committed itself perhaps not to something super radical, but you know, some kind of soft Brexit, some kind of reinstatement uh, that break in, of, bre- in, of breaking from its hesitancy over uh, anti-racism, which it hadn't committed to enough thoroughly, um, and tying those things to packages that you know, would empower and empower working-class people. The fact that it didn't, I think, spoke to the obvious electoral fragilities that we'll see, um, but I think also reluctance to jeopardise the, 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 the parliamentary Labour coalition and repeat the, uh, I, I personally, I think, empty specter of SDP Mark II. You know, and what happened, I think, you see, I think you see so much of what typifies the contemporary laborism. You know, events outside labor, such as Brexit, just become one of dependencies, uh, a series of troubling quandaries hampering the real tasks of, of, of socialism. Uh, opportunities others might embrace a curtailed because of the difficulties they pose for laborist calculation. And that means failing crucially to navigate the difficulties of working class decomposition and recomposition. And that's the problem that in that moment, Boris Johnson had no trouble exploiting.
3: Thanks so much for that, Jonas. And I think that kind of leads us into a broader question. Um, So I wanted to kind of intervene at this point a bit to take us back, but also hopefully to take us forward. there was much said of the 2019 election defeat on the part of Labour and Corbyn. Um, and a significant part of that was to do with this idea of a thing called the Red Wall. And so much dissect, so much has been dissected of this Red Wall and the idea behind it is that Labour has essentially lost quote-unquote the working class. And I'm just thinking about an analysis which came from a very unlikely source, which is um, The Economist. Who makes the argument that um well, first of all, the kind of diverging cost of living in London or urban areas in the u k versus these kind of suburbs, of course, these areas are significantly poorer, but that money goes a significantly longer way, right? Um, and I'm kind of pushing being pushed to think, sorry writing being dealt with um being pushed to think about the kind of common sense that we've been given this idea that home ownership makes for conservative voters and that home ownership on its own terms makes for conservative voters i guess the, the question that i'm trying to tease out of this is that sorry the question that i'm trying to tease out of this is um what do you think of the kind of uh, Shifting contours through schemes such as right to buy, help to buy, etc., um, and the impact on the sorry political landscape of Britain. Sorry, that came out so I hope that made sense. Sorry, that came out so jaggedly. That
0: made perfect sense. You have nothing to apologize for whatsoever. Um uh, yeah, um yeah, I I I see what you're saying. I think the there's um Analysis that 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 goes something like: um, asset price inflated home ownership has recomposed sections of the working class, uh, making them far more dependent on. By sections of the working class, I mean owner occupiers, people that own their home uh, but don't rent it out. Um, So you know, this asset inflated home ownership has recomposed sections of the working class, making them far more dependent on the stability of the housing market. And more inclined to vote for things like Brexit or Boris Johnson or right-wing pro stability parties. Uh, now, that like, with many things, um, I think there's undoubtedly some truth to this picture. Uh, you know, there there, there is a disdependency, for want of a better word, between sections of the electorate and policymakers who seek to stabilise the housing market as it currently is. Um, but this this process also has class iterations. At, 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 and geographical mappings. You know, if, if you own a house in Murford Tidfield, parts of stoke and trent parts of Bradford, uh, Durham, parts of it anyway, your house isn't going to be worth much at all. Let alone subject to massive asset price inflation, like it would be in Oxford, Hampshire, or London. Um, then there's the issue of right to buy and its long effects. You know, the biggest impact of right to buy was not to dramatically transform the stock home in Britain. It was to fund a huge wealth transfer from social housing stock to private rental stock, massively bolstering the scale of land, landlordism. Um, now, this is a massive problem, obviously, especially for those of us who live in big cities with soaring rents. Uh, and you know, and this is another side of the the, the working class remain condition. You know, <laughs> this is the this is one of the big things that working class remain voters have to confront. Um, but I mean, I, I'd spent most of my life until recently in London. Well, you'd be lucky to get a room for six hundred quid, uh, but even now where I live in Leeds, uh, the average rent in the last two years has doubled uh, to to about six hundred quid. Um, so we know that problem. We, we, you know, we know we have to confront landlord power, although it's not easy and it's not going to be easy. Um, and we know it has generational manifestations as younger workers, unless they're lucky enough to get some inheritance, um, they're unlike, unlikely to get on the housing market. However. <clears throat> for thinking about older workers in these uh, in smaller industrialised towns and cities uh, that we've been talking about in terms of leave um, of course there are landlords there um, but uh, you know we're not when you get past that bit of it we're not talking about people who live off the value of their household necessarily I mean we haven't seen massive shifts here right owner occupation has only increased 7% since 1979 um, so you know what, what am I saying with all this? It's a bit all over the place. Uh, I suppose I'm saying that whilst I think home ownership can be a real factor in class composition, that you know, the atomisation, the, the, the individualisation, the, the tendency to remove people away from collective action because they've got this massive mortgage payment, uh, I don't think it, it's necessarily the, the determining factor in comprehending uh, working-class support for Tories in, in, in 2019 or, or, or elsewhere. I mean, I think that, you know, there, there are political contingencies um, which which have animated other processes of decline, which we've talked about. Um, there is, of course, this, this other big question that the left needs to ask itself. Uh, you know, recently I've been going back to Engels' pamphlet, the housing question, and in those essays, Engels, ra- Engels is raging against the petty proprietorship advocated by Proudhon, Sachs, and... Uh, sort of status figures and middle class socialists as, as he likes to call them and he's it, also arguing for the sort of breaking down of the separation between town and country uh, a radical and interested argument uh, but the, the, the left has to re-answer for itself the housing question and it has to re-answer it in the context of mass home ownership and deep seated uneven development uh, because the world that Engels inhabited is so different uh, from the world that we inhabit and we have to think about that
3: Thanks so much. I just wanted to come in with a follow-up. So one thing which struck me as you kind of outlined those shifts is the increasingly farcical nature. One sec, I'm being All right. The increasingly farcical nature of the idea of home ownership for our generation, right? Mm. And it seems to me that many of the interventions we've seen, even during the pandemic, the intervention to protect the ability to get mortgages at 5%, right, which are actually the backbone of these suburban sort of um, developments. They don't want to call them estates, but that's pretty much what they are, right? These suburban developments, um, which skip the kind of right to buy years. Anyway, um, and in the context in which it's increasingly farcical, this idea that one might own property. are. Oh own a home in the context of Britain unless they are living I mean it's almost impossible to rent in parts of Britain unless you've got two people a two-person household right um in that context and I'm kind of um thinking about how um we've seen pockets of radicalization around this question of renters unions bringing also into this it kind of ongoing inquiry into Grenfell um and the conditions etc and I'm just thinking about whether or not this question of housing whilst it's been articulated in politics so much so as a um one which centers on a rightward or a rightward pull driven by home ownership could be mobilized by the left as a radicalizing tool and kind of yeah I was wondering what your thoughts on that were.
0: Oh, I'm not sure sure I follow. Sorry, Annie. Can you repeat
3: that last minute? Sorry. So I was saying that um, at the moment, Mm. it seems to me that the right is quite desperate in trying to maintain this kind of veneer or vision that it's possible for us to own homes, right? Mm. And for a significant proportion of our, our generation, that... No matter how much it's said, no matter how many schemes, it's just impossible. We have terrible credit. We're like up to our necks in debt. We can't even rent. Right. And most of the money we would spend on a mortgage is money. We go to paying our landlords mortgages. Right. And so in that context, where the housing question has been inserted so much in contemporary politics um, or contemporary neoliberal politics as being centred or articulated as the problem of increasing home ownership, flattening out the Labour vote. One sec. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the kind of emerging pockets of radicalism which re articulate the housing question as one of renting and the um, completely remote or impossible, the complete impossibility of buying homes for a significant portion of the population, whether or not that has kind of socializing tendencies. Sorry. Does that make sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. Sorry about that. Um, no. Yeah, I mean, the. I, I suppose um, you know, I, I see right, things like the London uh, Renters Union and things like Acorn reanimating some of these questions on an activist basis, uh, and providing some scope for agency um around this. Um but I, I remain uh pessimistic about the you know the, the capacity of this to find some uh particularly in terms of the way, you know, the way you uh ended it in terms of Socialising tendencies, uh, you know, that's just not the frame of the, the housing question right now. Unfortunately, the frame of the question is over ownership, uh, and and even you know, when we critique uh, landlordism, uh, it's on the basis of, um, it's on the basis of the desire to be to own a home. Um, so, I think our side just has so much work to do. Uh, the left, the socialists have so much work to do in terms of thinking through uh, what um, what answer we have to the housing question because there is obviously a set of immediate demands that people have to confront all of the time you know, people organise all, t- all of the time uh, in renters unions or independently of renters unions against landlords uh, and against poor living conditions against uh, expensive rents that they can't afford uh, that they're spending half their wage on it, translating that into a broader picture and a broader uh, vision for of how we deal with the housing question. Um, you know, I have desired answers too, you know, I'd be I'd be quite in favor of socializing all proper country and all of that sort of stuff, but we're so far removed from that. And and the, the, the patterns of the way in which Engels Engels talked about the housing question. And the world in which he was operating and the world in which we're operating now, we have to deal somewhat with the fact that working class people own, well, lots of working class people own homes. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's a problem we have to confront. I'm not sure if that answered your question. but
2: Can I jump in and ask you one more Question about the kind of theoretical influences of you here because it's it's quite interesting because as you were just talking you know I'm reminded of um, David Harvey likes to talk at the moment of. Um uh, about Volume One Itis, about Marxists who read Volume One of Capital with its story of the production of surplus value, and they think that class struggles can only take place at the point of production. And he's interested in saying, well, if we read Volumes Two and Three and we think about the difficulties capital has in realizing surplus value, then there might be class struggles at the point of realization of surplus value, which is, for example, struggles between renters and landlords. Um, and those might also be class struggles that have been excluded from that narrow um, frame. So I, I, I just wanted to ask if you have any thoughts about. Um, uh, I know you're very indebted to Henri Lefebvre, David Harvey, Ruth wilson Gilmore, and and other Marxist analysts of capitalism as a distinct uh, mode or set of modes of spatial production, uh, production of space. Um, And Brexit is obviously spatial in one sense. It's about reordering the spatial focus of British capitalism uh, from the European to the national or the global or the neo-imperial. But Brexit's also motored by different spatial experiences, the divide between pro-Remain cities and pro-Leave towns, for example. So any, what other thoughts do you, do you have about that, um, that, that general question of how we need to think space in the analysis of British capitalism?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really funny, and I, I sound silly for even saying this, but it wasn't really until I, I wrote the essay that I had a sense that I was writing about or even much interested in space. Uh, and, you know, I said it around friends, and they told me that's what I was doing. So then I thought, okay, let me look into that a bit more. Uh, yeah, you, also, you
2: also mentioned Neil Brenner, for example, who's a brilliant Marxist geographer that's not, I think, not that much read in Britain, but I know yeah, you're
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Um, a couple of things then. Um, yeah, the essay itself, I suppose, is partly about tracing the interaction between political economic spaces and, and social classes and what the, the struggle over space tells us about political and social actors. Yeah, because the story really begins in a moment of inter-imperialist rivalry, not unlike our own, um, quite some time ago. And then it weaves through the decline of Britain's empire, the, the, the transition from a sort of multi-state vehicle of violence, oppression and extraction uh, to its massive shrinking to a national economic space whereby, you know, the people now arriving because the imperial state was once on their land have to fight to make their own spaces geographically and politically. Um and so it's about what scope there has been for racialized minority workers to build some class unity with white workers, and to what extent that has been massively inhibited by uh, capital's reorganization of space, either indirectly or directly. You know, I think here about the disempowerment of municipalism as anti-racism becomes enclosed within the the, the, me- the municipal state, um, but also it's in the aftermath of a massive reclaiming of the streets by black and Asian working-class people in the early 80s. You know? I think about the way in which regional class actors, be they the sort of red citadels of left mu- municipalism, um, striking minors, uh, linking up with striking minors and, and, and anti-racist movements in places like Bradford, and how these form tentative lines of unity which are uh, uh, eventually overcome uh, and defeated by reorganizations and confrontations over space by capital. Um, you know, and it, there's obviously iterations of this when we think about the uh, the Leave and Remain votes. Um, you know, the, there's no coincidence that the the I, I don't think that the Remain vote was most predominant in the bigger urban cities. You know, the rapidly transforming, dynamic spaces. You know, that are sort of suggestive of class mobility, despite its obvious intangibility, uh, offering multiple socialities and amenities. Um, giving some weight, a small fractional weight, to the story advocates of the EU tell about it. Uh, you know, the, the vision of a particular kind of cosmopolitan existence, unconstrained by borders of passports uh, and open to a multitude of possible experiences. Uh, you know, is an image that charms, with say, London's picture of itself. Even as property developers, landlords, employers discard the possibility of its realization. But the overwhelming majority of its inhabitants, um, now, of course there's the other side of, of, of the coin in many in seats where the the experiences of decline, degradation abandonment um, and, and and not the huge rapidly transforming shifts you see in the city I mean has got a comment um, about this from a while ago I think where he he, he talks about corbinism being more popular in the cities because. So many of its residents see change happen all around them all the time. So the capacity for change seems more possible. Uh, I, I think there's something to that. Uh, I think that needs to be explored a little bit more. Obviously, that's a deeper point about the the, the, the built environment. Um, so there's that. Um, then there's, there's the transitions in space, uh, which should be obvious. You know, The fact that centres of, of accumulation that might once have had whole life worlds built around them in the north of England, um, for example, um, parts of South Wales, um, but, you know, have have been decimated and then more newer globalised centres of accumulation emerge congruent with more urbanised city spaces, more integrated into European space. Um, (laughs) And then then there's the issue of what this all means now. Um, You know, I'm uh, I'm quite fond of Harvey's notion of time-space compression. You know, he needs to talk about the transition from Fordi- Fordism to flexible accumulation in terms of an increased rate of exploitation, the expansion of digital technologies and the growth of new, uh, expanded and shifted global markets. Um, I think we have to think a bit about that analytic today. Um, you know, we experience, we're experiencing a new moment of flux and transition uh, to which we're not sure the outcome. Some talk about the end of neoliberalism, others talk about de-globalisation. I'm not sure. I don't have the answers, but I do know that space is absolutely critical to that story. Um, And rethinking um, people uh, like uh, Lefebvre, like you mentioned, um, bringing in thinkers like Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, for example, uh, I think offers us a bit of a way to sort of concretely Animate some of Marx's categories, as you alluded to, and give some life to them. Okay, well, great. And since I was on
2: a roll with space, I'm going to move from space to time um, because I want to ask about uh, the verdicts on. And this is a last question from me, and then I know Annie wants to to bring us right up to the present. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask about the verdicts on British history because I can't escape it because I'm uh, I'm struggling to write a PhD in it, and I, I want to ask you about some of the verdicts you give, because especially you mentioned David Edgerton earlier, um, and the the influential account developed on the new left in the 1960s by Perry Anderson and Tom Nairn um, has recently come under very spirited criticism from Edgerton and Edgerton pushes back against their miserable picture of Eucania, Britain held back from modernity by the enduring power of its aristocracy. And he stresses instead the distinctive nation-building project of British social democracy. You've got a lot of sympathy with that Agerton position in your essay. So, could you tell us a bit more about that and
0: about why it matters? Uh, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't want to disappoint people, but you know, I, I, I'm not a historian, so I'm not sure I add anything unique to this conversation. Um, but there, there, there is a great deal of value to what both Nan Anderson and Edgerton contribute, I think. Um, I think Edgerton's rise and fall of the nation uh, paints a far more compelling picture of the shifts in scale, state space, and transitions from empire to nation than the Nan Anderson thesis really allows. I think, if anything, the sort of story of declinism that they have uh, I, I think develops a fairly determinist art where there's, there, there are a few transformations in the variations of British capitalism. Um, you know, you, and then you have the neoliberal period and declinism seems appealing as a story again because, well, let's be honest, Britain is now a nation in decline. Um, but I think why it matters is because, like, why it mattered to me in terms of thinking about Edgerton's work is because actually that made me think through Brexit a lot more seriously. That made me think through the both the spatial uh and the national iterations uh that define Brexit and define the terms of the the, the working class leave vote. Um but um in regards to Nan and Anderson in terms of the way they think about it, um I just don't I just don't think the sort of narrative of declinism has always been uh, the case. Um I think it removes the space of variation. Um and I think Edgerton has had a, a massive influence on in the way that uh, I think about British history, but I think, that, I think that he should have a massive influence on the way that other people think about British history. That said, um, there are aspects of the Nine and thesis which are extremely important, um, both at the level of grasping labourism uh, as a national political tradition, which seeks to, you know, Tom, Nair- Tom Nairn talks about the nationalisation of class, um, so there's that. But there's also a tradition which runs short of even European social democracy, uh, that's that's Labourism, I mean. Um So, and I, on that latter point, I think I think uh, you know I think they point to something very real, but in some respects, I think it, they get it the wrong the wrong way around. Uh, the non-historian says uh, because I think the symptoms of uh, labor's economism and, and Fabianism and all of those sorts of things, I, I remain unconvinced that they're not the products of a stolid, incomplete. Uh, bourgeois revolution strangled by uh, the remaining aristocracy. I I, I, I don't sympathize with her on everything, but I really agree with uh, Ellen Markson's wood on this. I I think it's much more the case that the contemporary labourism, the the, the modalities of labourism, its conduits are the result of one of the most complete uh, bourgeois revolutions to occur. Now, there's a little bit more to it, um, which is Where I think Perry Anderson really had David Edgerton's number in his recent contribution is that I I don't think uh, Edgerton necessarily has a conceptually tight idea of the nation. Um, I think he, uh, you know, that transition from empire to to nation really needs to think about, be be thought about a lot more. And it needs to be thought about not just in the context of nation building, but in the context of uh, racism and racialization. And I, and, I, and I think that's lacking a little bit. Uh, I think he, he underplays the role of finance in the neoliberal transition just a tad. Um, and I think there's lots of important ways in which racialization structures, Blairism and new labor um, that are uh, absent, you know, that, the massive erection of uh, asylum uh, regimes, voucher regimes, the dispersal orders, the Yarlswood, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and the relationship between that as process of racialization, and then um, things like I mentioned earlier, Gordon Brown's uh, appeals to nationalism after 2008. One last thing on this, by the way. Uh, yeah, as I said, I'm neither a trained nor accomplished historian. <laughs> so one thing I think that is absent from, from, from but, w- but one thing that I think is absent from so many of these accounts is uh, a notion of human agency almost. I mean, there's always a notion of capital's agency, um, but I suppose there's always lacking a notion of agency from, from, from below. I mean, you read some of these brilliant histories, uh, histories that I really love, and I get a huge amount of it and, and really make you think, but you wouldn't have an idea that there was a British Black Power movement or a rock against racism. Uh, and I think we on the left need to recover some of those often uh, forgotten moments of agency, both explicit and subterranean when we write our histories.
2: I hope you will soon be writing yours, Jonas, despite your claim to be a historian. (laughs) Sorry, I'll hand over to Annie.
3: Thanks so much. Um, So I'm going to do a huge pivot, though I do want to come back to some of those themes a bit later on. Um, I'm going to come to a really big question um, and one which kind of, in thinking about Brexit and the EU seems especially pertinent today. So you started working on this analysis a couple of years ago, and um, it's it's in the couple of years that you did, quite a lot seems to have happened in terms of European politics. And I wondered what your essay or your analysis might tell us about the crises that we're facing now, especially the confrontation between some group or configuration called the West and Russia over Ukraine?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, there's several things there. Again, I'm I'm by no means an expert. Uh, I'll offer some thoughts and reflections. Um, And, yeah. Um, Well, there's um, the, the, the first thing to say is that this is, you know, horrific invasion, and it has to stop. Uh, and that should be the position of everybody. Uh, and I think is for many, uh, especially on the, the left. I've been on some anti-war mobilizations over the past few weeks, and that's that's good that they're happening. You know, uh, broadly the demands of the anti-war movement in this country to demand an immediate withdrawal and de-escalation, to stop NATO expansion, to let uh ukrainian refugees into the country by their hundreds of thousands have all been on the money um the that obviously that position hasn't stopped the current labor leader kirsten using uh the anti-war credentials of his internal opponents as a stick to beat them with uh you know seeking to further marginalize the labor left and break the connection between the labor left and the anti-war movement i for one hope that's something that doesn't happen um i think there are some. Uh, dangers and things to think about for uh, radical politics in the current moment uh, everything seems like a danger in the world that we live in um, you know, we are obviously as I've, as, as i 've said before and as i 've already claimed not to have any answers to uh, we are obviously in a mass in a moment of massive flux and transition um globally um And whilst uh, I'm not sure that neoliberalism is ending as such, I just don't know the answer. It is certainly the case that there are nods to transformations taking place, which might lead us to think that it is. You know, you you think of Joe Biden's economic packages to try and revive the US empire by shoring up economic and productive conditions domestically. Uh, It might lead you to think that. um, You know, a, a, a part of this shift, is related to a flux in inter-imperialist rivalries. I mean, you see the release of Nazan and Zagari Ratcliffe, they settled over $500 million of worth of debt. Uh, you, you, you tend to think there's some playing of the dice there, that there's some potential realignment as the West's relationship to oil to and gas becomes shakier. And I think you know, that's something that I don't have answers to, but I think we need to keep the finger on the pulse for. Um, on a much smaller scale in Britain, uh, this has manifestations too. Um, for the past month uh, what we would have called the Remain establishment between 2016 and 2019 uh, you know, the, a set of people who have obsessed over conspiracy theories to do with Putin's stealing of the EU referendum or the 2019 president, 2016 presidential election uh, these guys are now in, li- in alignment with every Putin admirer on the Tory benches uh, who now want a war against Putin um, and, and you see, and I think it's vitally important for the left to see that whilst the leave remained divide did represent real divisions amongst different blocks of capital, uh, fundamentally now in a moment of national interest, when inter-imperialist rivalries become crucially important um, in an explicitly physical sense in some ways, um, these guys can really put their differences to the side uh, and unite over something. And they could do it on the basis of both Royal Britannia and uh, European United. So there's that. Um, there's, um, there's something which, you know, I, whilst every socialist should fight tooth and nail to oppose the war, bring peace and Russian withdrawal, and get Ukrainian refugees allowed into the country, um, you can see how, how malleable process of racialization can be. Um, you know Putin who i have no truck with I, I want to be overthrown by his own people especially those very brave people protesting his, the war um, you know, this is a man who was once supported at arms length, uh, or at least entertained by so many western leaders and now you know he's an Asiatic uh, despot he's an unthinking irrational aggressor you know you can see process of racialization really seeping in they're contingent processes, you know. Because on the other hand, yeah, not to do with any white privilege or anything like that. You can see how quickly the Ukrainians can be racialized to a who are people and so important to uh, Britain and and to a broader imperial project. Um, and they should be seen as important, and they should be seen as welcome in this country. Um, but we should be wary of thinking that's because of our imperialist rulers and what they say to fit their imperialist agenda. Um, but you know we should think about it in terms of the fact that, that they're humans just like this, just like us, and their lives shouldn't be destroyed by war and borders, just like the lives of Syrian and Iraqi refugees uh, shouldn't have been destroyed by uh, war and borders. Two things lastly on this. Um, one, uh, we should be really careful about a Tory temptation to increase military spending. Um, there have been plenty ideologues in the pages of the Spectator making this case. Uh, and we have to be uh, very resolute that we don't need military spending at all, uh, let alone more on top of the spending commitments the government has already made. Um, so we see here how in this process of in- inter-imperialist nation states are already preparing and putting out the feelers, uh, especially when they're doing nothing uh, to deal with the cost of living crisis or anything like that. Uh, and lastly on this, I- I- I'm reminded of a debate David Harvey had sparked a couple of years ago. I'm not sure he meant to spark it, Um, but he foreclosed the possibility of communism or or socialism, small things I'm talking, uh, on the basis that neoliberal capitalism is too big to fail. That if you shut down capital flows from one part of the world, you devastate the lives of workers in another. Now, I I didn't necessarily uh, agree with his dismissal uh, of communism for all sorts of reasons we, we won't get into now. But when you look at things like sanctions, uh, which will hit uh, Russian pensioners and manual workers, people not responsible for the war. Uh, that question is is very real, you know. If it was ever in it, it's been taken out of the left hands, you know. It, it poses to us things uh, that we need to think about in this moment of massive flux that we're in the middle of, because it perhaps uh, signals the terms upon which a new period, and a new moment, is being constructed. Thanks so much,
3: Jonas. Kind of want to kind of I kind of want to pick on one thing that you talked about, and I think this kind of ties a few threads together um, from the incredible breadth of analysis you've given us tonight. Um uh, I've been thinking recently about Stuart Hall's essay on new ethnicities uh-huh. and the turn to thinking ethnicities um instead of race. Uh-huh. And oh sorry, in the <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think she's saying abolish race. I think that's what's happening.
3: <laughs> that was not intentional and that was her class. <laughs> All right, so uh I'm kind of thinking um about how Ethnicity seems to capture something that race in the common lexicon does not, but probably should, in terms of the cultural, political, spatial contours of how identity is constructed. When you think about the racialized outsider in the British context, that is articulated through all the data that we gather through the language of ethnicity, right? And so um, I'm kind of thinking about where next where next in the sense of like what conditions we're going to face but also where next in terms of how the left ought to articulate itself or re-examine some of these questions which we seem to think of as settled. Um, So I guess the question I'm trying to tease out, always trying to tease it out, never fully formed, Um, the question I'm trying to tease out here is in every kind of articulation we've seen of the contemporary conjunction we've seen as you argue an entanglement of race nation and capital right um and so as we kind of move forward from this if you want people to kind of take one thing away about what questions the left should be asking or trying to answer um what would that be
0: Never, never small questions on a salvage live. <laughs> um, questions that the the left should ask itself. Um, I mean, uh, one thing to one thing that I often think about is the how can you escape the nation? How can you escape the nation form? Uh, the the nation form is the, the very thing upon which. Uh, Political conversation, uh, class struggle—in uh, some respects, it's the very—it's f- the very modality through which struggle takes place, often, uh, and and through which so much of the questions we've animated tonight um, talk about. And you know, I consider myself someone to be an internationalist, uh, as Salvage and and you guys do too. Um, but we really have to think about how we, how how we, how we can escape the nation. Uh, form I suppose is a broader question in terms of you know how, how can we affect that socialist transition, but how can we uh escape uh the nation as a structuring element of our politics and as the way that we do politics um you know for for so much of the left at the moment, I think there's such a contentedness about the nation as a structure and form of of politics um and I think we have to figure out a way to do that um i mean uh I think about so much of the, uh, the anti-racist mobilizations that we've seen over the past few years. Um, and there's an argument to say when you see, for example, England playing in the Euros and all of the racist abuse that people like Bukayo Saka and, uh, and Rashford and all of these guys got, um, that the, the nation form is so easily the form upon which anti-racist politics manifests. Um, you know, it's restricted into those forms, just that like other politics. Uh, and I think that's true to an extent, uh, how could it not be, um, but there are so many other instances, Grenfell, like you mentioned earlier, Manchester bombings, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and, and we have to figure out a way of injecting a politics that transcends borders, um, not just throughout those struggles, but much more importantly throughout broader class struggles. Um. I mean, uh, for example, today, I don't know if anybody saw, but there was a massive stacking of ferry workers. Um, And I'm sure there'll be an argument in that struggle um, about foreign workers and and whether it's the responsibility of uh, foreign workers or whether there's foreign workers stealing our jobs uh, and all of this sort of stuff. And I think the left has to find a language and a way of speaking of anti-racist class unity um, I don't think we've done that uh, for a while. We've had moments where um, we we've come close to doing that, um, but I don't think uh, we've done that for some time. Uh, and we need to revive that. Um, and we need to we need to revive the organizational forms w- in which that might you know take some um, take place. I suppose um, you know that there, there are there's there's plenty of good anti-racism taking place across the country. Um, I think we need to find a way of of an umbrella almost that brings things together, uh, not in like a organizationally misplaced way, but in a way that brings that together and makes it a more effective movement that confront uh, that can confront um, some of the issues we face. Um, there's some other stuff, you know, to to to, to, to um, what Annie said. Um, I think about the, the 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 cost of living crisis. Um, I mean, this is just going to be a massive hit. (laughs) I mean, we we talked a lot about rents throughout this entire thing. Um, But when you see a massive rise in your energy bills combined with your rents, you know, we're going to have to find mechanisms and ways of of organizing to confront that. You know, obviously there's an effort to make that the responsibility of of, of Putin uh, and the war in Ukraine now, but we have to find ways of dealing with that. Um, And... It's something there's something that I've thought about a lot recently, um, which is the I don't know how many of you managed to listen to the Trojan Horse Affair podcast, um, which documented uh outrageous racist uh moral panic against Muslims in Birmingham and, and the involvement of Muslims in the education system and stuff like that. Uh and managed to use that as a lynch pinch, uh for sort of underlying and, 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 and emboldening the broader attack uh, on education. Uh, you know, Gove was a, was a crucial was a crucial circulator for both of those things as the, the Minister of Education at the time. Um, and I think one of the things that we really have to deal with and that concerns me and runs throughout all of my concerns in, in, in thinking about Brexit and what created Brexit is the idea of this moral panic. This idea of this ideological displacement, um, and we have to, we have to really get, get how we can get ahead of that because I don't think we ever have different um, tentative answers.
2: Thank you so much. I um, I have a follow-up. I want to get also to one uh, question that we've got some questions coming in on the chat from from people watching. Um, so I want to start by uh, getting your view. On one of those, and then as we finish out the event, um, I, I just have one last question to kind of bring us to a close. Um, uh, so, so first, uh, uh, as briefly as you can, on these questions, comrade. Even though we keep asking you huge questions, um, but uh, we have a question from Colin Wilson, uh, our comrade in, in Britain, who asks, "Where does Brexit leave the Tories? Thatcher put together a coalition with business. Most business supported Remain. Johnson said, fuck business.'" What class forces do the Tories represent now? Mm. So that, and then, then I'll uh, I'll bring us right up to the present with a closing question for you. Never a small question. Uh, well, I, bl- I, blame, we can blame
0: Colin. We don't even have to blame us. This yeah, time. Exactly. We can just blame Colin this time. Yeah. Thanks, Colin. Thanks, Colin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, where does uh, Brexit leave the Tories now? Um, well, it's difficult because so much stuff has happened since 2019, and so much stuff has happened since 2016. Um, and i think the the tories at least from below if you like to think about all of those votes that they got in the red wall and other places you know working class votes and all of that sort of stuff i think they will face some difficulties um because you know although there's a lot of you know understandable talk about a transition away from uh from the liberalism towards something uh, new and something that we you know we're, we're we're unable to identify yet. Um, I do think that it's the basic issue that the the Tories haven't really dealt with austerity. They did some pandemic man- management, um, and they did that um, they did that on on, on quite a, a radical scale in the in the history of the last forty years. Um, but there's still a. a you know, there's there's still a difficulty they have when they're orchestrating the cost of living crisis. When the effects of austerity are still existent and haven't been dealt with, that the the promise of an investment led buck business uh, tanks on labor's lawns uh, wager um, poses electoral problems for them now, you know, and this is a process in flux, right? Because you have, uh, Things that like the T sides, the T side Tories, uh, who have you know nationalised an airport, uh, have plans for green regeneration uh, and new jobs on that basis. You know, there's a, there's a fight within the Tories itself, uh, and I don't think that you know there's a fight between Johnson and the Treasury, for example, and I don't think that's uh, that's met its full fruition yet. I don't think Brexit is the determining factor in this situation. Is the truth. Um, I think we've to some extent uh, moved beyond that. The modalities of Brexit that were mobilized into 2019, I think are the, will be determined then for at least their electoral prospect, electoral fortunes. Um, but that being said, um, you know, we're in this moment of flux uh and it's difficult to know to what extent um you know, because I had I had I had considered that the, the capital had basically uh gone in the end, in line with boris johnson's broader project by twenty nine by sort of 2020, 20, 20, 2021 and dealing with the pandemic um you know the, the brexit question have subsided um, to some extent um capital at large has gotten what they wanted um, i'm not sure i'm not sure what this new set of fluxes and transitions um, that we're experiencing now leave us with leave and leave the relationship between the working class and Tories and capital and the Tories. Um, But I I don't think it's the same Brexit dilemmas that we were all foreshadowing. Okay,
2: so now to come right up to the present. Um, You said a moment ago that we struggle to find ways to escape the nation form as socialists and have struggled to do so since its post-1945 global ubiquity, very late. Uh, But, you know, anti-colonial radicals struggled uh, with it and and socialists in the Metropole did. Um, I was struck, as you were saying it, that the European Union was for some people of the left, uh, especially after the decline of the rival models of global governance in the Bretton Woods Project and in the Warsaw Pact. The European Union represented some attempt to move beyond the nation form. uh, And yet you show, I think, quite politically importantly, Uh, how it was always entangled with a a different vision of uh, uh, um, post-imperial orientation for British capitalism and nothing uh, sort of emancipatory about it. Um, When we spoke yesterday to prepare for this conversation, you said something very interesting. I thought about the relevance of your analysis for today. You said, um, this is a moment in which people who supported the EU as a progressive bastion now find themselves, some people on the left, like Paul Mason for example, now find themselves lining up again behind the EU um, in a developing inter-imperialist clash. Meanwhile, the leading representatives of the Leave campaign, who we were told a moment ago were fascists, are uh, also the, the chief prosecutors and cheerleaders of that inter-imperialist clash, people like Boris Johnson and all the, you know, so, so we now hear from liberal leavers about Aaron Banks and Nigel Farage being soft on Putin, but actually the leavers who matter, the people who are in the, today, the people who are in the cabinet, Boris Johnson, Priti Patel, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as an important leave outrider, Rishi Sunak, uh, they're all cheerleading for this uh, uh, for this kind of inter-imperialist clash. So um, if leave and remain are not a, a very good Binary for thinking about our politics today. Uh, what is? That's my last question for you, Jonas. <laughs> um,
0: what is? I, I mean, within that particular paradigm, you know, I think to some extent, you know, the class needs to take a, a a real precedence. You know, I mean, all of the people that you've spoken about and referred to there, and all of the blocks that they represent, are united by a particular class position uh and I, I never think the left should uh stimulate uh or, or or move away from that um nation uh is another one <laughs> right? All of these people uh to some extent are committed to Europe or Britain's uh expansionist imperialist ambitions. Um, just so happens just you know totally accidentally <laughs> right now that the, those things coalesce. For a lot of these people, and of course it's not accidental it 's it's not coincidence because there has for some time been some coalescence there um, in terms of europe and britain's uh ambitions um, and there's you know there's also uh, a third factor um, which is just a complete unflinchingness uh when it comes to prosecuting processes of racialization uh yeah, you know, all all of these guys are completely uh, committed to that, uh, and it and it's based on contingent moments, and it constantly shifts um, based on that, and it can be malleable, and they can t- change their minds now, but reanimate the thing they changed their mind on uh, some years later. Um, but the the nation, race, and class are always things that these guys are are willing to to, to mobilise and to push um, in the. In it when when it when it when it when they feel like it really um so i think that's something to think about but i also think we need to think about how we can put forward a new anti- internationalism uh, and anti-racism and class politics in a new moment and you know i don't have the short answer to that um but i think that that should really be the priorities of the, the socialist left
2: Thank you so much Jonas. So a history, a long history of class politics in Britain that leaves us as people were left a century ago in that moment of the left the second international with uh, a need to reinvent uh, traditions of internationalist politics capable of being genuinely emancipatory and not lending support to any imperialism and also uh, capable of um, uh, uh, analyzing the challenges of their moment not just as often we remain stuck in moments of the past. So that's extremely helpful. Uh, this has been salvage live thank you everyone for joining us and uh uh we hope to see you again soon thank you jonas thanks
1: thanks for listening if you like this episode subscribe to our podcast and to the haymarket books youtube channel where events like this one are hosted live and don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org